Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're re- Reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email. Hi there. I got an interesting email from somebody who contacted me and said, Carol, sometimes I think I just need a divorce. And that was kind of interesting because what I know to be true is when somebody says that, if they've been with a good therapist, they may absolutely know what they need. But if they're making that decision on their own, then they can't possibly know what they really need because they're reeling from sexual addiction, they're reeling from sexual addiction recovery, the beginnings of. And obviously they're dealing with a lot of trauma, a lot of anger uh, that that they don't want to have to deal with. You know, they just aren't quite sure what they need to do to make their life different. And so I say, If you're thinking about getting a divorce and, you know, you really feel like maybe your partner is not the right person for you and you've been dealing with sexual addiction for a long, long time, then I get that that very well could be incredibly difficult to navigate. And I would ask you to do a couple of things. I would ask you to go to my YouTube page. Sex Help with Carol the Coach and pull up my most recent YouTube on divorce. Because the truth of the matter is, I don't have that many men that want to get a divorce. Maybe they do, 
but they don't say it out loud because what they really want to do is right the wrongs and work on their relationship with their wife and see if they can make it better. And I've even met a couple of men who they say, hey, I'm not attracted to my wife, not in the least. And she is so mad at me that it is very difficult to live with her, even if I understand why. Even if I I would be beating the bejeebies out of me too. And yet what they're really saying is that they they find it difficult to deal with the collateral damage of her anger. The fact that they know they caused it, but they don't want to have to deal with the anxiety, the hypervigilance, the ruminating thoughts, the being awakened in the middle of the night to be asked questions about their affair partners, their escorts, their prostitutes. And so they really they get tired and they go, I don't think I can get through this. So now if I'm working with the partner too, I say, you know what, you and I need to figure out what we can do to make these triggers better. Because they have every right to express them, but what we know to be true in any marriage, if you are a partner, you've got to be able to feel the feelings, express them, and balance them with why in the heck you're staying. That might be the kids. It might be finances. It might be because you have an idea that this man could get healthy, that it's not just he wanted to have an affair. It is a compulsion. It is an addiction. He has tried to stop, and he's not been able to. His brain right now is hardwired to get more and more intense in his addiction and more and more frequent. And for that reason, knowing that he has an addiction, you're willing to stick it through a little bit and see what the heck you can do to make the relationship better. And here's what I tell the addicts. Now, I really do think you should go to my YouTube because you'll get to see me telling you. But in the meantime, I tell my addicts, I say, you know what? You got here. You put everybody else here. It's the least you can do to see if you can heal your own wounds, fill that gap, feel better, increase your self-esteem, and then prove to your partner that you're willing to do what it takes to make her life better. And if you heal your wounds, improve your self-esteem, practice good recovery and really work on the recovery tools that it takes to work on this very difficult process addiction, here's what I promise will happen. And, you know, they say as a therapist, never make promises. But I promise you this will happen. A, the process will get easier 
be, you'll start enjoying the very work that felt so cumbersome. So in other words, you'll start enjoying it and you'll actually look forward to meetings. You'll look forward to coming to see me. You'll look forward to doing the reading. You'll want to tell other people about what they can do to get healthy. You'll want to be a sponsor or at least offer good advice at meetings. You know, I know there's no crosstalk, but clearly when you talk about your own story and you share what has helped to make you healthy, wow, other people listen and they go, I want what he has. And that is the beauty of recovery, that transformation where you've turned your own suffering into a gift. And when you feel better about yourself, it just may be that you feel better about the relationship. And if you don't, that's okay, too. Because when you work with a CSAT or an APSATS, you know, a certified partner trauma specialist, you can at least do the deep dive into the marriage to talk about what's not working for you after all this other stuff. And as a result, the marriage might get healthier. And if it doesn't, literally, if your marriage doesn't get healthier, okay, then I guess you you have made a choice after some good recovery skills to cut your losses. I'm always a proponent for staying together, but clearly... I also believe in the self-determination of the client. And if after you've done all your work, the marriage isn't getting any better, sometimes I actually think being together can be more harmful, well, then you've done your hard work and you're ready to make the next change. Nothing wrong with that. But please go to Sex Help with Carol the Coach on YouTube and pull up that video. I just downloaded it tonight. And it is well worth, well worth the view. I mean, I think it's um, 12 minutes, maybe eight. You get. We start out with uh, looking at Boo. Everybody knows my dog Boo because I put him in my videos because he's so stinking cute. And he is always sitting behind me on my computer chair. We are joined at the hip. You know, when I first got married, I said to my husband, hey, honey, I want to be joined at the hip. And he said to me, now remember, I had never been married. I got married at 44. He got married at 37. We were more likely to be hit by lightning. But he said, Carol, honey, you want to be joined at the hip if we're going your way. You don't want to be out there washing those cars. You don't want to be out there reading the paper. You want to be doing your thing. So how about if we reunite at different points of the day, but there's no joining at the hip. And several other times I would say, honey, blah, 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 blah. And he'd go, Carol, I'm not your girlfriend. I am 
I know this sounds so shallow, but he would. He'd say, I'm not your girlfriend, and I can't relate. Call your girlfriend. And I'd go, oh, well, I guess I wanted my new husband to be the recipient of all this stuff, but I guess not. And as a result, um, I thought that was actually very good advice. He was really saying to me, hey, I I'm not even interested in that, let alone I can't respond to you like that. And so I would. I'd call my girlfriend. And and I always loved that. I loved having my girlfriend to talk to. And that's the important part for either one of you guys. Whether you're the addict or the partner, you've got to have your own support system. Your husband or wife can't do it all. And... Sometimes my friends would say, Carol, that's horrible that he said that to you. And I would say, not in the least. My gosh, you know, he was there for me, and as a result, I really, really appreciated the fact that he was honest. Oh, did it hurt? Did I want something different? Of course I did. But in a marriage There has to be honesty. And when there's honesty, even if if there's conflict, it will bring you closer together. And in an emotionally mature relationship, I had to just accept that my husband, who had been single 37 years, and I, who had been single 44 years, were not going to be able to depend on each other for everything. I got that. I also heard what his needs were, and I said, hey, I can shift my expectations. And shifting expectations can be very, very healthy as long as you're getting your needs met. Now, interestingly enough, would you, as an addict, or as a partner, know what your needs are? Would you know what your physical needs were, emotional, spiritual, intellectual, social, and purposeful? Think about those six categories, write them down, and then ask yourself, what, what are my spiritual needs? What is my purposeful need? What are my social needs? What are my emotional needs? What are my physical needs? What are my intellectual needs? And write those down so that you can begin to figure out ways to meet them in healthy healthy ways because you're less likely to act out as an addict or to depend on the addict if you're a partner for those needs. You'll live a more balanced lifestyle. So again, those six needs are the emotional, the purposeful, the spiritual, the intellectual, the social, the physical, and let's see, I think I got them all. Um, Social. There you go. What are your needs? Now, we have a guest tonight who is an expert at the field of trauma, relational trauma, 
um, she works at an incredible center whereby she has learned how to treat any kind of addict. Now, next chapter treatment, which is in Delray Beach, Florida, was started by an NFL player, and she's going to talk about his story as well as what kinds of things men deal with that help to create the emotional wounds that require medicating. And when somebody has decided to medicate with drugs, alcohol, gambling, sex, overeating, workaholism, overspending, they are not dealing with their true feelings and their true wounds. So we are looking forward to having Faith Niece on the line, who is very clearly an expert in the field of relational trauma for next chapter treatment. And, you know, what I believe is that she is really somebody who can take your life to the next level through this treatment center. And that is so important because, you know, faith knows what it's like to have enmeshment and abandonment in your family. And as a result, when a child lives what they learn and maybe has generational um, experiences throughout the family, they have to do some deep diving into those relational wounds to figure out how they can improve their relationships, increase intimacy, and decrease the medication that occurs from you know when you use drugs, alcohol, or intimacy um, anorexia, which is you've always heard me say. Sex addiction is an intimacy disorder, and there's no way it couldn't be because you have that dual experience of hiding and lying and cheating and meeting your own needs versus being in a system that requires authenticity, transparency, and honesty. So, hey, Faith, welcome to the show, Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely, and you work for an incredible treatment center. Just just give us a little idea of what next chapter treatment is and how does it differ from some of the other treatment centers out there? Absolutely. I have gotten the pleasure of being on kind of both sides of the equation when it comes to the treatment industry, you know, and coming from originally being a private practice therapist, I had the opportunity to refer clients to, you know, a lot of amazing treatment centers. And now that I'm with Next Chapter and um, doing the work we do, I think the biggest difference is really focusing on being the corrective environment that a client would need um, in order to heal some of that deeper relational trauma. So, 
the biggest thing that I see um, with us as a team is that we all live the model that we also teach our clients. So in doing that, we're always modeling this um, nurturing, you know, functional adult, um, being authentic, being genuine with our clients in the same way that we're asking them to be with us. So it becomes this very equal process that, and sometimes in, in treatment, what I've seen is, you know, it can become very separate. You know, the therapist is above the client um, or, you know, they're kind of seen as separate from, whereas we, we approach treatment, substance abuse, trauma, um, process addiction, sex addiction from this place of, you know, we're equal with the client and, and guiding them through how to nurture themselves by the way that we take care of them. Um, you know, and that focus on, you know, trauma as anything less than nurturing. So being that nurturing environment that a client would need in order to provide the most optimal healing. Um, and it's really been an honor and a pleasure to get to bring, um, you know, that same model um, that I practice in private practice into this inpatient setting because it sets it really sets people up for success in the long term. Well, I bet. You know, I was doing some research, and I realized that Anthony Fasano is an NFL tight end who's the owner of this facility. So how in the world did that come to be? Uh, Well, it's actually um, a family member of his has a history of struggling with addiction. And after kind of seeing what – um, his brother-in-law went through and, and treatment, how that experience was for him. He got inspired to kind of participate in being part of the solution in the treatment field because a lot of times, like, we hear about a lot of the negative things about treatment in South Florida and different things like that and seeing some of the systems that weren't working, uh, he got really inspired. And after meeting Abe, our clinical director, he they – came together with this brilliant idea to start to treat addiction in a new and more in-depth way to create long-term healing and recovery. And so obviously you are out of Delray Beach. Absolutely. I'm I'm an Indianapolis native, but I have two condos in Naples. And when we want to go to a fun area, we hightail it to Delray Beach. It's just so artesian and it's so recovery. It's fantastic. So your next chapter treatment center is in Delray Beach, Florida, correct? Yep. We're located in Delray Beach, which is kind of the – we have an amazing recovery community, and that whole surrounding area has such a supportive recovery environment. And in addition to it being, like, really beautiful and some great food and near the beach, it's also – got such a community environment where people who come down and are in recovery are really embraced. You know, they're, they're brought into a 12 step fellowship where um, any of the meetings that they go to, people understand the difficulty of being new in recovery and new to treatment. And our clients have really been able to be, you know, supported and, and brought in with open arms to the community down here. So it makes it kind of an easy transition for clients who maybe have never been in recovery before, they see so many people living the recovery lifestyle on a day-to-day basis because we have so many people that have gotten clean and sober down here. And so, obviously, you know, 
your center is a little bit different than other larger centers because do I understand there are 10 beds at your center? We're, we are, yeah, we're very small. We're actually an 18-bed program. We have two separate um, houses. One is more geared towards our younger clients, anywhere underneath the age of 30, um, so that they're all kind of grouped by age. And then we have another house that's for our older or more professional clients who may have a family and wife and uh, home, you know. So the environments are a little bit different. In our younger house, they might be getting more life skills at times, more how the first time they've ever you know, made their own meals for themselves or done their own laundry, and they're getting a lot of those, like, basic life skills that maybe they haven't had the chance to practice yet. Where in our older house, we're focusing more on, you know, what it's like to be, um, you know, a, a man, a husband, a father, and really having the courage to face what they may have not, not been able to but before being in treatment. So splitting them up, we found, like, we're able to group our guys by, you know, specific, um, specific concerns and also give them house members who are in a similar place to where they might be at. So gearing, gearing one house more towards that professional group has also allowed us to, you know, bring in clients that maybe normally wouldn't want to be in treatment. You know, they're afraid of leaving their comfort of their homes and we make sure to have a really an environment that would be similar to what they would expect to have at home, you know, um, furnished in a way and comfortable in a way that they don't feel as displaced because leaving for treatment can be a really, really difficult decision for a lot of our clients who have family back home. Well, absolutely. And I was reading some of your testimonials and clearly one of the greatest advantages was that these guys felt like they were at home, they felt the personalization of the program, and they also didn't feel like they'd get lost. They didn't think they could hide behind their addiction. And so although I don't know anybody who works in a treatment center for 10, 20, 30, 40 days and feels like they hide, it clearly puts extra pressure and maybe even accountability on them to just do the work, dive into it, and discover who they really are. Yeah, and what we found is having that small of a milieu allows us to customize client care and be very specific to what their concerns are. You know, um, I think that's a real advantage for us that we get to meet the clients where they're at at any given point in their process. You know, we're anywhere from 60 to 120 days um, at times. And we believe that the longer a client can give themselves to be in this process, the more effective uh, the treatment is going to be and their recovery is going to just benefit from the more time they're able to give themselves. But because of that, you know, a client might be um, ready to do some more intense work sooner than another client who, say, has never been to treatment before. So we're able to really pay attention to the individual differences between each client because we do focus on more of the trauma treatment, we get clients that at other treatment centers may kind of fall into the background or are able to kind of, you know, be lost in the shuffle. And, um, or clients who maybe they would look like they were really difficult or disruptive to another treatment center, but we're able to see where they're, they're really just acting exactly how 
they've acted that's got them there. And, and because of that, them being that authentic, we get to work with how those trauma reactions, which is how we would refer to that, um, have impacted them and created the dynamic that brought them to addiction in the first place. So with the model that we, we work under, you know, the wallflower client might be like the lost child or the client who's acting out on a regular basis and causing some chaos might, might be more like the scapegoat. And they would expect to get treated in the same way that they would get treated in their families. But because of the excellent clinicians that I work with and, and because we're all in that same, same page of, and modality of treatment, they get that corrective experience that they wouldn't normally get at another treatment center. Um, and we know all of our clients so in depth from being so small that it makes it very easy to build that like compassion and empathy um, when they're acting in ways, like I said, that brought them to their addiction in the first place. Absolutely. So let's dive into some of the terminology you just used. For instance, for our listening audience who have sexual addiction or partner trauma, because this could apply to either mm-hmm. one of them, uh, Absolutely. how would you define relational trauma? I would define relational trauma as, well, anything less than nurturing in an environment. So we talk about um, trauma between the family system, which means that for a child, when they turn to a parent, do they feel like they are safe, connected, and supported, and nurtured by that parent, that they know that they're perfectly imperfect, that they're valuable, they have healthy limits and boundaries, they're able to have moderation and containment, and with all these different ideologies, we look at, you know, where in their family did that not happen for them? Um, So anything less than a nurturing environment. So with relational trauma specifically, there's a betrayal with the safety of a a nurturing relationship or a parent relationship or guardian relationship. So say I turn to my parent and they are critical or, um, verbally abusive, physically abusive, sexually abusive, or even just absent, maybe busy, overwhelmed, unable to really meet my, my basic needs as a child, we consider that a relational trauma. And then it impacts the way we relate to other people in our lives going forward based off of the patterns of relational trauma that we experienced as a child. Um, so again, that, that anything less than nurturing and we talk about a lot of times like the impact versus intent. I might, a parent might not mean to impact a child in a less than nurturing way, um, but usually that, that impact is subjective. So I may intend to do the very best for my kid, but the impact that they're receiving might be that like they're, I'm not there for them. You know, maybe I'm busy, you know, off at work trying to make money to pay their private school bills, but they perceive it as they're never there for me, you know? So what we're doing and how it's received by someone is very subjective. And we look at that subjectivity of what did you receive based off of what you felt you experienced as a child. Um, and if you felt like maybe they were too invasive or you never had any privacy, we would consider that um, relational trauma as well and more on the enmeshment scale. Well, and you and I both know that you just brought up some very common relational traumas, but for a lot of these guys as well as the women that we work with, 
it's been pretty severe. You know, parents have yes. been alcoholics. They've not been around. There's been abuse that's occurred. There's been, you know, witnessing of real anger and and fighting between mom and dad and fear for life. And, and so relational trauma is on a continuum, and obviously it can mm-hmm. be feel like you were abandoned or neglected, or it can actually have severe um, consequences in the home that could have required the law to come in and intervene. Exactly. Exactly. Now, I when I studied with Patrick Carnes, and I know you did too because you um, are right now an ASAT. Tell us a little bit about mm-hmm. that. Yeah, the ASAT certification is for clinicians who have been in the field for less than five years. So um, my journey to becoming a CSAT started while I was still in grad school. I knew that I wanted to work with sexuality and um, healthy sexuality and intimacy, and I had the opportunity to join a practice that specialized in sex addiction, and I just I fell in love with the depth of the work, as well as, like, the possibilities that I saw open up for clients who really were able to finally have a safe place to talk about something they never thought that they would get relief from. And so I started pretty early on knowing that I wanted to focus on sex addiction, doing my trainings um, immediately after graduation, and due to that, I I'm an ASAT up until actually about a month from now, I'll be able to apply for the full CSAT. So I have the same training as a CSAT therapist. I just have that less than five years in the field. Yeah, and it doesn't take long to figure out that we truly are specialists in the field. I mean, we really, fortunately, I would love to say any counselor can do what we do, but that's just not true. They don't. They don't know what they don't know, and there are resources that they don't know about. And certainly, that partner and sex addict trauma is something that you've really got to get into, or that transformation can occur through the twelve steps, and also mm-hmm. through normal counseling. So, tell me a little bit about how you feel relational trauma that you just defined for us. How does that impact? intimacy, because I, I say sex addiction is an intimacy disorder. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, I mean, if we look at it, you know, the one of those primary beliefs behind sex addiction is that I'm, at my core, I believe there's something unlovable or wrong about me that, that someone would not want to be with me over, so I settle for or pursue sex as a way to deserve love, you know, and, and it can vary from client to client, but that's kind of a general theme that I see pretty often. And because of that, it's that fear of intimacy. If someone truly knew me, I would be completely unacceptable. And we learn our worth, our value, and whether or not we're acceptable from our family system. So if I have either covert, which means, you know, kind of not as obvious or, you know, it's hard to define, hard to get a grasp on, or overt relational trauma, and overt relational trauma is some of the stuff, the severe, you know, um, molestation or violence in the home or, you know, having to be separated from your family. Whether or not you have either one of those, it's going to impact relationships from there going forward. And so 
what I see in partners oftentimes is two people come together and they both have their own relational traumas that impact their ability to truly let the other person see them. They're, they're unable to really get to that authentic, this is who I am, this is my true self, because of the fear that if I show you that, you're going to abandon me, you're going to leave, or you're going to suffocate me, you're going to take over my entire identity. Um, I won't have my own space, I won't be able to be my own person. So those are both of those are results of that learning that relationships are not safe you know, and then, and then creating that in that partner dynamic. So oftentimes, um, you know, when working with partners, it's just as important to look at that family of origin trauma because both partners in a co-sexatic relationship are, are probably experiencing their own relational wounding um, while each one of them is going through their recovery process. Well, that's a great point. And so, what relational trauma is commonly experienced by those with sex addicts? If you had to give it the bullet points, what would you say? Yeah, there is research to suggest that um, most male sex addicts come from, and next chapter is a male-only facility, so I'm going to speak about men more so than women, although we know that the prevalence of sex and love addiction in women is, you know, very high and probably higher than reported, but um with men in sex recovery, a lot of times what we see from their relational trauma is this rigid, disengaged family system. So um, kind of perfectionistic or cold, um, or we also will see the very enmeshed family system, you know, no sexual boundaries or perhaps um, enmeshment with either parent where they feel like they're the parentified spouse um, they had to be mom's emotional caretaker or um, had to be dad's partner in crime or, you know, sometimes parents will enmesh children in their, in their own untreated sex addiction. Um, and that intergenerational family trauma that you mentioned at the beginning of the show can occur, you know. Um, so it's either this rigid, disengaged family system or relational trauma where, you know, it becomes neglectful. You know, I'm only good enough if I'm doing what my parents need me to do to be acceptable, in which case I kind of abandon my identity and I don't get my needs met because I'm only being how I know to be to meet my parents' needs or that enmeshed family system where, Again, I'm I'm really not getting that nurturing environment because I'm I'm always caretaking or or suffocated or don't have enough space to be my true self because I'm caring for my parents' needs. Well, and it's interesting because I started to say and then I forgot um, that Patrick Carnes taught us in our CSAT training that abuse is a horrible thing to endure, and everybody has um, a tolerance for what they can deal with in their family, but perhaps the most insidious uh, relational trauma is neglect. When a child is neglected, does not have his or her needs met, and oftentimes does exactly what you just said and spends their existence taking care of their parents. 
Yeah, and it's interesting. One of um, one of the things about neglect too that can be so much more difficult sometimes for a client than say, you know, well, any abuse, of course, as you said, is is horrific. But the client who I would I've seen the client who has um, overt physical abuse, they have they know that that's not okay, and there's something different. Than that, like they have a sense of the opposite of what that abuse would be, so they they have something to compare it to. And oftentimes with neglect, it's like I don't know what I didn't even get, so I don't even know what the opposite is. So there's this very painful void that can happen of I'm not sure how to even what I need, how to take care of my needs, or even what a need is because I've been in this place of a void of nurturing. And so it can be really, really painful and and confusing um, unless you know, you know, the signs and symptoms and how to start to teach a client to nurture themselves and not neglect themselves. Yeah. So you mentioned a very important thing and that is we can't necessarily go back and get those needs met. Although certainly in treatment, especially in the type of center that you work for, there are opportunities for, through role play and through the group, you can actually create some family drama, um, psychodrama that replays what a, what a child would have liked. And that's always mm-hmm. important because that primal brain doesn't know the difference. So if, if you can reenact that and get that in a safe, supportive environment, like Next Chapter Treatment Center, then what ends up happening is that they feel better and they feel like they were able to process something they didn't get. However, for those people that need a little bit more or for the people that can't go to a treatment center, obviously they have to reparent themselves. They have to learn how to give to themselves that which they did not get as a child. So I was talking earlier about you got to identify what your needs are and you have to find healthy ways to get those needs met. And I know Mm -hmm. that Next Chapter does a great job of helping men to see what they need to do to identify their needs and to find that outer circle behavior, that healthy behavior to balance their life. Yeah, and, I mean, I think it's so crucial, too, because – Sometimes um, I've seen in the with treating sex addiction inpatient, we're so, I mean, we have to spend so much time breaking through denial and defining, you know, inner circle and um, shame reduction of, you know, all that carried, you know, guilt and remorse from what, what occurred in active addiction that sometimes it can be overlooked of like that healthy sexuality piece which is such a huge part of maintaining healthy sexual boundaries. Because if I'm not practicing that self-nurturing, self-love, reparenting model, I'm going to need something to soothe again, you know, and I end up back in that same old pattern because I haven't actually started to do that core change or that second order change that we talk about where I'm actually treating myself in a new and different way. So, we talk a lot with the guys about like just different basic nurturing skills, you know? So it starts off, you know, with our, our houses and our resident managers who do an amazing job of 
modeling and teaching our guys what it is to just have those like basic self-care needs. Um, And then we take that a step further in our clinical work where, you know, what about meeting my emotional needs and that combination of both reaching out for support, but also knowing how to internally validate that I'm worthy and valuable, that, you know, my needs are appropriate, that it's okay and safe for me to ask for what I want, which for men especially can be terrifying, you know, because what does it mean about my masculinity if I let someone support me and be there for me and we're able to really walk and guide them through that process so that there isn't shame about having emotional needs. And, um, and if there is shame, they're able to talk about it. So with being like that healthy functional adult for themselves, they are able to create that healthy sexuality, that outer circle, circle or outer, outer wheel um, in those 12 dimensions so that they know what they need in those times when they're kind of feeling rocky or triggered, as we would refer to, um, and possibly in a trauma reaction. Yeah, exactly. And for our listening audience, um, explain what a trigger is. Yeah, so when we... Yeah, we refer to trigger as any event, experience, or feeling that may remind us of a past event that was less than nurturing or as we would define as traumatic. Um, So triggers could be something that would trigger you um, to want to use drugs or alcohol again, and that could be a movie or a song or uh, certain roads sometimes will, will trigger a client. Um, all the way down to, like, those sexual triggers, which could be, you know, um, objectifying or sexualizing or commercials or, um, you know, even we teach in our community environment, you know, how to be respectful of each other. And sometimes in that learning process, you know, things could be said that might be triggering to another client um, and triggering in the way of creating arousal or fantasy or the desire to escape through um, sexual acting out. And then we also have, like I said, those emotional triggers where it's like, wow, you know, this interaction reminds me of a time where I didn't get my core emotional needs met and it brings up that trauma reaction. So when we talk about trauma reactions, we're talking about reacting to a current event through the emotional intensity of a past event. So basically it's, um, you know, in our daily lives, maybe I'm, I'm driving and somebody cuts me off, you know, and in reality and I'm in my healthy adult, that might warrant like a three reaction. It's, it's kind of not fair, but I'm not totally losing my emotional regulation because someone cut me off in traffic. But we see often that when someone gets cut off in traffic, it kicks up this feeling of injustice that may remind them of a similar experience where they felt injustice in the past and that was never corrected, and they react over a five. You know, so they're bringing their past into their present and reacting in a way that's not appropriate to the situation at hand. And really, trauma reactions are such a key in helping our clients really learn how to stay in their healthy boundaries. Because when we start to get reactive, we become impulsive um, and we start to lose sight of how to maintain those appropriate healthy boundaries for ourselves. And that can often lead to relapse. 
if unchecked. Well, I absolutely get that. And so if I can, you talk about age regression and how that can lead to relapse. And I'm all the time talking about emotional maturity, which sounds like that would be the opposite of age regression, but I think not. Age regression is actually um, kind of a state of mind that's a trauma reaction, is it not? Yes. Yeah. So, um, like, a good example would be, you know, in that, what I was talking about earlier, it's uh, I'm in traffic, someone cuts me off, and then all of a sudden I feel like, my indignant teenager, I maybe feel like about the age 16, and I would consider, I would call that, you know, I regressed to 16-year-old ego state, which is the, cl- the clinical way of saying, um, you know, basically acting out, you know, and I regressed to that, that 16-year-old ego state and act in a way that's not emotionally mature. So when you're talking about emotional maturity or age regression, I think it's kind of a a similar term and a similar um, expression of the same idea. Um, But when we talk about age regressions, what it does is it helps our clients identify what age am I actually feeling right now so that I know what trauma or relational trauma might, might be being kicked up based off of what happened to me around that age range. And then that gives them the clue of, okay, so what do I actually need right now to be able to be in my functional, healthy, boundaried adult. So going from that wounded ego state to a healthy, functional ego state. Well, and oftentimes what I find to be true is when someone is able to identify what age they are, they can actually even sync it up to their sexual timeline, and lo and behold, there is a sexual issue that occurred about that same age that may have even fused with that trauma and set up that compulsivity. Exactly, exactly. And I feel like it's so empowering when a client starts to put those pieces together. Like, they feel like it finally makes sense for them. You know, whereas when... I see clients so often when they're first coming to recovery, it's, I don't understand what's happening to me. My partner doesn't understand what's happening. I have no power, no control, no, no, really, it's very confusing and scary. And through kind of being able to link that age regression to their use timeline, their sexual timeline, their trauma timeline, which we have them do all three of those assignments, um, they're able to kind of see what the pattern is and they have, they, they get empowered in their recovery. They get to have a choice again, rather than feeling like this is just happening and I'm on this roller coaster of addiction that's taking me down this path that, that is destroying my life. They now get a choice to take a different road. And, uh, and I see that really change a client's feeling of, um, self-efficacy in, in a lot of times, a lot of cases. Well, and you and I both know that it really does explain as well as legitimize what they're going through. But then in addition to that, what it really helps to describe is that neuroplasticity that could occur at that age but 
doesn't because of the trauma. I mean, when there's trauma and then there's compulsivity, it creates ruts in the brain that increase in intensity and frequency whenever there's either more trauma or more sexual acting out, whether that's pornography, whether that's sexual play, whether that's molestation. And so that's why what you and I both do really has to do with brain science, too, because of the fusing of trauma and a sexual timeline. Yeah, and it's it's so often I see it where there is that co-occurring um, addictive process because of that neuropathway stuff. You know, if, if I lean towards um, that neuropathway of numbing, my drug use, sexual acting out and other possible process addictions mirror that same numbing pathway. And if we get down to what I'm numbing, it's usually a trauma, you know, or intensifying or fantasizing. I mean, we all kind of find the thing that works and then do that until it doesn't work, you know? And, and so when we figure out what's really the core thing behind why I'm using this neuropathway we can then coach them and and guide them towards how to change their behaviors to change the brain. And it's, again, hugely empowering. Absolutely. So now, one more time, I'm talking with Faith Niece, and she is an LMFT, an LMHC, and an ASAT, which is soon to be next month a CSAT. And so... She works for Next Chapter Treatment, which is in Delray Beach, Florida. And if you have more questions about that treatment center, if you want a smaller treatment center that can really personalize your recovery, and that is what I got from all the information I called and got information from them, it it really would behoove you to look at www nextchaptertreatment.com and find out more about this program. Faith, if you had to identify three things that make this a treatment center that um, might be the right fit for our listeners, what would you say those three things are? The primary thing that I would say first is our ability to Um, customize our clinical care to the client, our ability to focus on the underlying core issues or core beliefs that are really fueling the addiction, and then our ability to to assist the client in maintaining long-term recovery by changing the system that they live in. A big part of our treatment that I haven't talked much about is that we work very closely with the families or partners as well as the addicts. So when someone comes to treatment with us, they get their own primary therapist. And in addition, we'll assign a separate therapist who specifically works with the identified family members. And so they're in a parallel process, which means we're having the family, the partners, do the same model and same type of in-depth therapy work as we're having our clients do. Um, So this sets them up for success because so often a client will come into treatment, do their work, and then go home to the same family system that they were using in. And 
for the families, they don't get their healing. And we know for partners, they're in so much pain and so much trauma um, that for them to not get their own processes is, in my opinion, unfair. And we provide an environment where partners and family members are going to be getting um, the same level of care and treatment as their client that is inpatient with us. So I think that really um, changes how successful a client can be um, in their aftercare recovery. Oh, absolutely. That would definitely make a difference in terms of the probability that a client is going to get their needs met, get the right recovery tools, and apply it to their life. Because what we know to be true is that sometimes um, people with process addictions have to go through significant treatment one, two, or even three times. And so what kind of follow-up do you do at Next Chapter for um, your patients or clients that, that get into the program? Well, we offer a variety of um, options for our clients, but we usually start by recommending intensive or aftercare experience um, where we have a follow-up program that is three months in length where they continue to do the same model and the same type of work and the depth of work that they're doing on an inpatient level in an environment where they're living in a halfway house that we've worked closely with and trust um, so they can have that real-life experience of living on their own, being independent, outside of the bubble that residential treatment creates, and then also allows them to continue that deep work at the same time. So we have this set up where in our residential program, they're learning about their triggers, they're learning about their trauma reactions, we're working with them as they're showing them to us. And then they're able to step down, do that extensive aftercare where they're in the real world having real-life experiences and being able to come back and process that and receive support around it. So it's, it's not um, such an abrupt change um, for our family, our clients who have family members out of state. We will work with um, clinicians and referents that have the same model of care that we do to make sure that there's continuity uh, because we know that, you know, so much is done while they're inpatient with us, but really the true work shows up once they meet life on life's terms. So um, we have a close network of, of reputable therapists and um, reputable halfway houses across the nation that we foster relationships with to make sure that our clients are getting the best possible aftercare for their success. Well, I feel very fortunate to have gotten to interview you tonight and find out more about Next Chapter Treatment. And if you were going to add one more comment for our listening audience so that they um, recognized when they needed your treatment, what would you say? I always encourage clients, if there is a question about, you know, do I need to do outpatient services or private services versus residential to always give themselves the gift of coming to a residential program, you know, um, 
there's so much suffering, so much pain, so much fear that goes along with addiction um, that to do that in a safe environment and really give themselves the opportunity to heal at a deep level, um, it's, it's just the biggest gift that they can give themselves and their family members. So my, my, my biggest piece would be don't wait until it's too late to seek help. If there's any question about it, um, go to the, what, I was, what I was taught and um, what I truly believe in is I want my client to get the best possible care right off the bat. So if, if you're able to get the best possible care by coming to inpatient, do that right off the bat, even if it may not seem like it's that bad yet or maybe I can do it another way first, which addicts always like the easier, softer way. But what ends up happening is the easier, softer way is really the way that gets you towards your healing the fastest. And there's so much evidence to support that completing an intensive inpatient program is really that way to build that solid foundation and maintain continued recovery so they don't have to live in the pain or desperation or hopelessness that they may have been experiencing prior to figuring out that um, they may have a, a substance abuse disorder, process addiction, or, or unresolved trauma. Oh, very well said. Faith, thank you so much for your information. Sounds like this is an incredible treatment center. Um, and, again, they can contact the treatment center by going to www.nextchaptertreatment.com. Thanks again for, you know, so much information. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. I hope you have a wonderful night, and thank you to all listeners. All right. You take care. Have a good one. You too. Okay, so that was Faith Niece, and she is a clinician at Next Chapter. And Next Chapter, there are treatment centers out of Delray Beach, and it sounds like a very intimate and personalized kind of treatment. If you are having difficulty getting on track, maybe you've tried many of the recovery tools and it just doesn't seem to work for you, or as Faith just indicated, come early. Come before your behavior is so ingrained that you're white-knuckling it and um, chopping your legs off. It is a wonderful facility. Take a look at that website. And started by an NFL player who really had an affinity for his brother-in-law who wasn't getting good help. All right. I will see you next week for more Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Don't forget to go to that website, mine, Sex Help with Carol the Coach, or my YouTube's Sex Help with Carol the Coach, where you can always email me at Sex Help with Carol the Coach. You have a great week, and as I say at the end of every show, there will only be you at all, one of you at all times, so fearlessly, fearlessly have the courage to be authentic, transparent, and to be yourself. Talk to you soon.